We are in 1 Thessalonians, if you don't know, uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we'll be looking at verses 14 and 15 this morning. If you would, uh, if you're not already there, if you would turn there, and if you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to grab a blue Bible located underneath the seat around you, and in that Bible, you can turn to page 988, and that will bring you to our text this morning. I'll tell you right now that I have decided to make this a two-parter, two-parter, so we might finish around 11.30, So, I love you guys so much. I made this a two-parter. I decided to do it. I, I'm just going to go ahead and do it, John. So like I told you, I said I wasn't sure. I am going to do it because um, I have all my notes, but uh, we're going to have a breaking point. I decided to do it because I think I just have too much, which is usual, but, um, but maybe even more so. And also, I want you to hear the message twice. <laughs> Ooh, that's right, because I'll give it this Sunday, and then I'll review and then I'll give the rest of it. So, All right, let's look at the text, though, the unit of text that we'll be dealing with. We won't cover it all, obviously, today, all right? But let's look at it as a unit. I'll go ahead and read the, the two verses here that the Apostle Paul um, authored to the church in Thessalonica, beginning in verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So, last week... In verses 12 and 13, and remember, we're at the end of the letter. So these are some concluding exhortations and thoughts that Paul has for the church. But in the verses just before that section that I just read, the congregation or church in Thessalonica was asked to by Paul to respect its leadership. We talked about that last week. And the leadership there, I told you, I believe that that would be directed toward the elders, or also known as the overseers, or shepherds, or pastors of that particular local congregation, or for that matter, any particular local congregation. And he asked the congregation of the church to respect them and to esteem them very highly because of their work. We covered that last week. And now, transition slightly and still speaking to the congregation, the congregation now is urged by Paul, to attend to and help other brothers and sisters within their congregation with various problems. Uh, one commentator uh, put it as those who need special attention within the congregation. He wants the congregation to address them, to help them appropriately. But why these instructions? 
Why these instructions? Why did he say this specifically? Well, no doubt, it was Timothy's report. Timothy had been sent. If you remember, we covered all this some time back. Timothy had been sent back to Thessalonica to find out how they were doing and to continue to strengthen them in the faith. Timothy has now returned. Upon return, or sometime after this return, Paul then writes this letter. So Paul has got news back, and that has influenced what he wrote, or did influence what he wrote. So these particular matters were related to that particular church, but certainly they have application to any and every church throughout all history. Beyond that, if we look at this, verses 12 and 13, respect your leadership, highly esteem them in love for the work that they do, and now speaking to the congregation, I want you to address and help some specific folks within your congregation. Why would Paul even take the time to do all that? Because he desired to see the church be all that God would want it to be, (laughs) healthy, healthy. So all of these things that Paul is addressing are really things that need to be addressed in order for the church to function well. A congregation that loves and respects its leadership, who's doing some difficult work and has heavy responsibilities, responsible for the souls of those that gather there, and also that the congregation is not just the leadership, but the congregation itself is working to care for that body and addressing needs and matters as they come up. Okay? So it's not just that the leadership has responsibility, but the congregation has responsibility as well to one another and to the leadership. And if we're all doing our part, then that congregation will function better than if we aren't all doing our part, okay? So a healthy church. Now, this passage got me thinking about something. So before we dive into some of the specifics, it got me thinking about something. These exhortations by Paul, the ones we just read, just think about them for a moment. Let me read them again. He urges the brothers or the brothers and sisters or the Christians of that local fellowship, he urges them to do several things, right? These are imperatives, they're commands. You're to do this. You are to, within that congregation, admonish the idol. We'll talk about what this means, but just, you probably already have a good idea of what it means. Pretty simple language, but we'll dive in a little bit further. Admonish the idol. To you, brothers and sisters, Paul is writing, admonish the idol, okay? Within that congregation, encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See to it that no one repays evil for evil, but rather that always everyone is doing good to one another in the body. And of course, he extends it out further to everyone, even those outside of the church. These exhortations by Paul assume one is thinking about treating and interacting with their church community, that local church where they attend and that they are a part of, in a certain way. 
They're thinking about that church. They're, they're treating that church. They're interacting with that church in a certain way. These exhortations assume that. A way in which not all Christians think about, treat, or interact with the church. In fact, what I have observed over the years is Christians thinking about treating, interacting with their local church community is often, is often not the way they're supposed to, but in the same way they do the communities in which they live or their neighborhoods. In other words, they treat the church community that they are a part of very similar to the way they treat the community in which they reside, their neighborhood. What do I mean? What do I mean? Well, we recently did a hospitality study, right, on the hospitality commands. And part of that was we are to be, hospitality is love of strangers. I mean, that's basically what the word means. It's caring for others, those you don't know. And part of that is we are to be hospitable to one another in the church. We to our, open our homes to them, extend ourselves to them, get to know them, show them love to those we don't know within the church. That would certainly be true. As a church grows a little bit bigger than 20 people, you'll start to not know people in that community, right? And so you are to show hospitality for a variety of reasons. But it's not just the church, but it's also a command to show hospitality to those outside of the church, i.e. your neighbors, your neighborhood, your community. And as we were working through that, I don't know if you had the same experience in your uh, growth group, but what we were talking about is our culture does not generally do that. We don't generally even necessarily know the neighbor right on the right or right on the left, let alone across the street, right? We don't know them. Not really, not really, and have them in our home? Now, there's exceptions, I get it, but just generally speaking, this is, tends to be true, certainly within Southern California culture. Now, we, and I'm just thinking about a neighborhood, and then I'll bring it back to thinking about the church community. So you have your community in the neighborhood, and then you have the church community, and I'm just trying to draw some similarities here to show you that we're doing something we shouldn't do if we're treating the church community in the same way that we treat our neighborhood community. But we see our neighbors, they come outside, you know, and if you're a good neighbor, right, this is kind of how we define good neighbor, we're polite, we wave, hi, we may or may not know their name, Right? Right? So we wave. Hi. Um, but we're okay with, you know, going long periods of time without ever seeing them. Right? I mean, you know, oh, yeah, there's Bob. I haven't seen him in a while. Or, hey, there's our neighbor. I haven't seen them in a while. Yeah. But it's not like we're bothered by it. It's no big deal. We... Uh, if they were to come to us and ask us for help specifically, we would probably, being a good neighbor, 
offer that help if we could, right? But they would have to come and ask. We wouldn't probably know anything in particular about their needs or their troubles or their problems or just generally speaking. But if they came and asked, we would, we would certainly help and then leave and go back to our house. Yeah? And we probably don't have uh, any significant relationships with our neighbors. I mean, you might, and don't think because you do, because you have a significant neighbor or a relationship with your neighbor, then none of this counts to you. It does count. Just listen. Just listen to me, okay? The general idea. But maybe, you, you know, maybe your neighbor is your relative. I don't know. And so you're like, I have a significant relationship with you. Just listen. You get what I'm saying. Generally speaking, you know, pull into the garage, the garage door shuts, you go into your home, that's it. That's it. We aren't really partnering with our neighborhood in any significant way. We aren't investing in our neighborhood. And I'm talking specifically the neighbors, you know. Uh, we aren't overly concerned about the other folks who make up our communities. Am I not? Is this not right? I think it's right, generally speaking. In fact, in fact, I, I was having this conversation with Thomas, just trying to test this on him, see if it held water, you know, my thinking here. Because sometimes I can come up with crazy ideas, but if I see... If, if you were to see or I were to see my neighbors across the street, you know, in a fight, like a husband and wife, screaming, yelling, right? Um, and I was outside. I, you know, I think the general response would be, I think I'm going to go back inside. I might keep an eye on it, listening for gunshots or screaming, he's going to kill me, or something of that nature, and if I heard that, then I'll do the good neighborly thing and maybe call the authorities. But just generally speaking, that would be if the fight settled down, or even, you might, maybe it's just right next door, you hear them screaming and yelling. But how much thought do you give to that, honestly? I mean, they're your neighbors, you know. You're not going to the next day go over and say, I, you know, I, I don't know, I just, I heard you guys screaming and yelling at one another. I've seen this behavior for a long period of time, and I, I just wanted to be there for, if you ever need to talk, I mean, you know, talk to me or whatever, I, I would love to talk. You're not, who does that? They'd be like, they, you know, because they'd be like, who do you, who are you, you know? I'm the guy that lives next door, I've never seen you, I've never seen you. You get what I'm saying? We, we tend to be independent, private, self-sufficient people. And I would say are generally opposed to the idea of anything that sounds like a communal type of living where we're sharing life in life together, partnering with one another, being uh, transparent with one another, knowing each other, being involved in each other's lives. We almost push back against that culturally speaking. I, and, and maybe part of it is even we've seen cults where, man, they're, they do everything together and associated with that is bad doctrine, so we, 
we put the two things together, them doing everything together is bad. No, their doctrine was bad, but then they become controlling. They go outside of the bounds of what scriptures would say we're supposed to do. I mean, if you look back at the first church, and you can look at it later in Acts 2, right? 3,000, Peter preaches, 3,000 people believe and get baptized, and just read the text. Go back to it. Read Acts chapter 2 for yourself. It was a form of communal living. They came together. They had all things in common. They were breaking bread together. They were coming under the apostles' teaching at that time. They were helping one another. They were selling their possessions if necessary, not because they were forced to, willfully, freely, deciding to sell some of their stuff in order to, and then bringing the proceeds to the apostles' feet that they would have the money they need for those that were in need, really in need, and they were just sharing life together, breaking bread together, so weird, you know? But no, not, not in a church setting, not in a church life. That actually is the idea, a, a partnering and investing in one another's lives, a caring for one another, a, a concern for one another. You know, I, I would even think, just thinking about the neighborhood, there might be reasons that we don't get too involved in the neighborhood, in our neighborhoods, because we think, you know, if I get really involved with these people and things go bad, I live here. Who said, yeah, someone over here is affirming that. Okay, right. I live here. Oh, I know your story. No, I know. He told me about his neighbor. But I'll be careful. I'm not going to say any names in case someone hears this on uh, the audio or whatever. I know your story, though. Yes, so you think, you know, he tried to deal with something and it didn't go so well. But he, he did it well, but it didn't go so well. But you're thinking, i got to live right next to this person or whatever. And, and honestly, look, I just, I got enough trouble I just want to be able to come home and relax and rest. So you know what? You know, like, I just want safety, like, uh, keep a safe distance from my neighbors, you know? Hi, bye, let's keep it really superficial. If you need something, sure, I'll help. But other than that, I don't want to really get involved. That attitude, and I'm not saying anything about that attitude, okay? Okay? I'm not saying, at least not today, I'm not saying wrong or right, I'm just pointing it out. That approach, that attitude, that thinking often makes its way into this community as well. And if that was the attitude, or is the attitude you have, or you might come to adopt at some point, wrongly, or the way you think about the church, then this passage makes no sense. It makes no sense. And you can't fulfill it. It would be impossible. Imagine now your neighborhood. And someone comes into you, to you specifically, and you know, among your neighbors, and it says, okay, listen, folks, neighborhood gathering. Admonish the idol. What? I don't even know these people. I couldn't even tell you who's idle or not. And even if I did suspect that Bob is idle, or at least that guy across the street, I'm not in a position to just walk over there and talk to him. How would I ever do that? And honestly, why do I even care? I mean, his idleness, I mean, fine. If, you know, in a way, if we're thinking of work, He's been uh, out of work and not looking for six months. 
So he'll lose his house. So what? I work hard. I'm not going to lose my house. Someone will buy it. That will get snapped up in the market in five seconds. Maybe it'll be a nicer neighbor. I don't know. I don't care. Encourage the faint-hearted. Again, to the neighborhood community. What? I have no idea who's faint-hearted. I don't even know the guy's name that lives next to me. I see him. We wave. We're polite. How often do you see him? I don't know. Once a month, generally. Our schedules cross. We both go into our garages at the same time. Right? And I'm not bothered about that, that I don't see him very often. So as an example, that shows up in your church attendance. You're not bothered that you don't see the body that often. It doesn't bother you, really. It should. It should bother you. Because if you're really concerned about them, how can you truly care about them if you don't interact with them? on a regular basis. You see? So, whether we like it or not, I, I think some of us, and certainly I could speak for others outside of this local body that I've seen just in my history in the church, they treat church like they treat their neighborhoods. And brothers and sisters, did you hear what I just said? These people in here are not your neighbors. They are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you were to think of them that way and treat them that way and interact with them in that way, then then this passage could make sense to you, would make sense to you, and it would be something you could actually do because you are partnered with, involved in, actively caring for a particular local body. Therefore, you have relationships in which you could admonish those who are idle. You would even know, you might know some that are idle, and you would be able to speak to them because there's a partnership. You're both looking to grow in the Lord and be all that he would have you to be. You're both concerned about the health of that particular local body, so you not only speak, but you listen. You would be able to encourage the faint-hearted because you would know who's faint-hearted, and you would care, so you'd want to do it because you wouldn't want to see your brother or sister stay in that state of faint-heartedness, so you'd want to lift them up. See? So bottom line, it is impossible to make sense of today's passage if one has simply a good neighbor mentality about the church. Because I would, I, would, I would also put forth that I think people think they're good church people. Because they do the same thing they do as a good neighbor. They think they're good. They're doing a good job because they show up once in a while. They say hi. If someone asks them to do something, they'll do it. But that's it. You see why we're going to do two parts? Aren't you glad you came this morning? Where are those other people? Can't wait to see them next Sunday.
First Thess 5.14, and we urge you, brothers, now we'll go back to the text, and we're just going to look at two of the exhortations. Maybe, maybe, maybe I didn't tell the truth. 11.35, maybe. We'll see. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the aisle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Again, beloved, this passage assumes something greater than a high and by good neighbor relationship. It's just not possible. It wouldn't make sense. He spoke to a body that was partnered together, that were, were fellowshipping together, that were caring for one another, that were into each other's lives. So, of course, that made sense then, right? All of these exhortations, as I said, require some level of investment in relationship with, partnership with other people in the church. Bottom line. So, the first thing Paul exhorts the church to do is admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. Uh, Quick note here, just to point something out. It's important that we don't mix up the imperatives. So, Admonish the idol, not encourage them. (laughs) And likewise, encourage the faint-hearted, don't admonish them. Okay? I thought that was helpful just to point out. Also, I don't believe this means, and you shouldn't take it to mean, that everyone in the church who isn't idol then is to admonish the idol member or members of the church. Not everyone. So that, I don't think that's the natural uh, relationship or how that would, this would practically be carried out. In other words, you know, like, all right, well, let's think about who's idol, who's idol in the church, all right. Like, you're thinking about this now collectively. It's Joan. I'm pretty sure no one in here is named Joan. Okay, so it's Joan. <laughs> Joan is idol. We all need to gather together and admonish Joan. I don't think... That's not the idea. The, you know, in the body, in the community, okay, you might know because you are partnered with that community, you have relationships, not with every, you don't have deeper, that's impossible. The bigger the church grows, the even harder, even harder it would be to have relationships with everyone in the church. Now, if we were a church of 20, then all right, I get it. I mean, everyone would know everybody and everyone's business and be able to speak to everyone. And that would be fine, but... Even our small church is big enough that there's some folks on this side that are, they don't, not probably know some folks over here, maybe don't even know their names, probably don't. So I would say, you know, you would strive to at least know other brothers and sisters' names and to get to know them on some level, at least get to know your brothers and sisters in this community on some level, but then a deeper relationship where you might know something about them being idle at the time, which we'll talk about what that means, would be limited to a fewer group, like, for instance, your small groups. I would hope that in, within your small groups, our growth groups, you would know what's going on more particularly and have a greater relationship with those folks in that smaller group, or maybe in your men's studies groups or your women's studies groups, or maybe just with a group of folks that you spend more time with in this local body. And as this exhortation goes out, you in that particular group, having a relationship with that person in that body, a little bit deeper than, I know you, I've had you over, we know each other, we know a little bit about each other's families, but it, you know, we can't have time to get to know everyone or keep spending time with everyone, but you know in that lo- smaller group that a person in your group who is idle, admonish them. And you would be in a position to do that because you know each other, you're in each other's lives, 
You wouldn't just be coming over and going, listen, I found out from Bob that, Joan, you are idle. And so I came, because Bob's afraid to, I came over here to admonish you. It wouldn't go like that. And rather, it would be more natural. It would be like, you would kind of know that, because idleness is not something that happens overnight. This is a process. It's been going on for a while. So you then would speak into their life, not keep your mouth shut and do nothing and let them continue on in their idleness. Not only is that not good for them, it's not good for the church either and for the witness that the church is to be to a, this world. That's how I see it played out. But if you know no one, and you're not partnered with this church really, you're just kind of treating it like your neighborhood, then this thing just comes and flies right over the top of you. Monish the idol must be someone else's responsibility. No, it's your responsibility. This is directed to the church. So there's an anticipation in that you know your church. And maybe in your smaller group, you don't know anyone who's idle. So guess what? You don't need to admonish anyone. Okay? But hopefully somebody knows that person and they would then take this exhortation specifically to them and help their brother or sister or Joan admonish them. (laughs) Does that make sense? I'm trying to make it make sense without it getting weird so, or sounding strange or something that's impossible to do. So admonish, again, you hear it, you, you're part, you know this church, or you know folks in the church, you're connected on a deeper level with some, you are in their lives to some degree, and you think, okay, there is someone in my group, and I need to admonish them. Now, it could be everyone knows their idol, then, then I don't know. Maybe they'll get hit multiple times, you know? Admonish, what's that mean? Well, it's also translated in uh, Bible passages as warn, or Bible translation as warn. It means to warn or reprimand someone. Warn or reprimand, it can mean either one. It literally means to put in mind, to put something in their mind. And normally the idea is, it's one or the other, to put something in their mind like a caution, or to put something in their mind to reprove them. One writer or scholar says, it's the activity of reminding someone of what he has forgotten or is in danger of forgetting. It may involve a rebuke for wrongdoing as well as warning to be in, on guard against wrongdoing. It's both. Okay? It is the same word that Paul used in verse 13 when describing the work of the leadership of the church or the elders. Part of that work includes admonishing the church. So there may be general admonishing that goes on as we move through the scripture, certainly, right, from the pulpit, but also the elders are, have oversight over the body, and when necessary, they'll have to step in maybe and admonish. But it is not only the work of the elders or the pastors or shepherds of the church. It is also the responsibility of the body at large to admonish those among them, in this case specifically concerning idleness. And it would be the case with other things too that they may need to be admonished in, but this is the one that Paul is calling attention to based on the circumstances of the church in Thessalonica. Remember Colossians 3.16, right? This is, Colossians 3.16 is written to the church, not specifically to leadership or to the past, to the entire church. And what does he say? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. It's the responsibility of the church. 
But again, man, that's like what I'm saying, that people come in, this is how, this is how I see it. It's all throughout. People come in, and I'm not just talking about some, it's just my history, church history. They come in, they leave, you don't even know who they are, and they don't know you either. How are they ever going to, how would they, how would this ever occur for them? They don't know people, they don't have relationship with people in the church, it's just like their neighborhood. This assumes that you care and that you're partnered with a local body in a, in a real way. Okay? You get that? So, I mean, there's a calling on us to obey all of Scripture. But often we're disobeying another piece of Scripture so we can't obey this piece of Scripture. Like how we think about the church. We've allowed sinful thoughts or wrong thoughts to remain in our minds about how we think about this local body, or any local body for that matter, and we're okay with it, and we don't do anything to get rid of it and replace it with biblical thoughts. So if you're wrong here, then you're not going to be able to do this either. So we need to move back one step and say, I need to think right about the church, and then I need to take steps to treat the church like God has called me to treat the church. And if I'm doing that, then when I get over here to these exhortations, I can actually fulfill them. In fact, I want to. Okay. It's all good. It's all good. We're all in this together. This admonishment. (laughs) All right. So, it is those who are idle that Paul urges the church in Thessalonica to admonish. What is idle? I think you know, right? So, as an adjective describing a person, it, it generally refers to avoiding work, Avoiding work or being lazy. Now, the Greek word here that's translated lazy in the ESV, that Greek word simply refers to someone or something that is out of order. Out of order. It was used in a military context and kind of came to be used in other contexts as well, like a soldier that was out of ranks. But it could be understood in one of two ways, this out of order. It could be understood in a, the passive sense, in the fact that it would be describing a person not doing what they ought to do, and thus are lazy or idle. They're passive. They're just out of order, not doing what they're supposed to do. It can also be understood in the active sense to point to a person that is unruly or insubordinate. So think about it like in a courtroom when people are not following the rules but speaking out like the people, the witnesses and stuff or the people in the back, ah! you know, they're yelling and stuff like this. They're like, the judge goes, you are out of order, that kind of idea, but they're actively out of order. They're, does that make sense? But passively, the guy that's supposed to be going to work but isn't going to work because he's decided to just sleep in, he's out of order too, passively, lazy, idle. So it can be understood in both ways. The New America Standard Bible, the New King James, understands it to be active out of order, not in a passive sense, but active sense, and they translate it unruly, admonish the unruly. Okay? But other Bible translations, they do it this way, uh, those who are irresponsible, that's how they translate the word, admonish those who are irresponsible, admonish the undisciplined, admonish the lazy. 
I'm good with idle. I understand it to be, I would take it to mean in the passive sense, idleness. Not fulfilling responsibilities, being lazy, undisciplined, all of those. Okay? And there's really no way for us to be certain, but one scholar points out that the other characteristics that are mentioned here in verse 14, the faint-hearted and the weak, they are, other, they are also passive images. So likely, it's a passive sense in which Paul uses that Greek word. And so the ESV translation, idle, is a good translation, in my opinion. Why did Paul address this specifically? Why did he say admonish the idle, this specifically? There were lots of things he could have said, right? But he said admonish the idle. Why? We can't know for sure. Because he doesn't tell us. There's just not enough information here. Certainly, we can assume that there were idle within the church. In some context, they were, in some way they were being lazy or undisciplined. And so he calls them to admonish them. He calls the brothers and sisters in Christ that are not being idle to admonish them. But in context, in chapter 4, he did say there in verses 11 and 12, work with your own hands as we instructed you that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Okay, So we have that as context. And as I told you when we looked at that passage, that was an encouragement to each individual in the church to do his own work and so be self-supporting, be a contributing member of the church and also of his city. And Paul himself attempted to set a good example in that regard, working with his own hands, supporting himself, trying not to be dependent on others when he could take care of himself if he would work and not be lazy, okay? And be dependent on no one, that thought there is materially speaking. That's the context. And when I looked at that passage with you, one scholar said avoiding material need would benefit the church. Certainly, right? It would be a benefit to the church because if you're able to provide for yourself, then you don't have to look to the church to provide for you, which would mean the church would have additional resources for other things then. In addition, it would prevent the church from getting a reputation as lazy, non-contributing members of society, and thus lowering non-Christian citizens' opinion of the church. Look at those lazy bunch of people. As opposed to, look at those hardworking, responsible, is that what Christianity does? Should. A lazy Christian is a Christian that's out of order. An undisciplined Christian is a Christian out of order. An irresponsible Christian is a Christian out of order. One scholar thinks it could be, and we don't know, he says this, those Thessalonian, Paul is referring to those Thessalonian members who without any intention of actual wrongdoing were neglecting their daily duties and falling into idle and careless habits because of their expectation of the immediate appearing of the Lord. Possible, possible, don't know that for sure. They may have, they're so excited and now they forgot, yeah, but, Yes, he could come at any time, but it could also be a long time. It is imminent, but that doesn't mean today or tomorrow necessarily. And in thinking that, thinking wrongly really, they decide to say, well then, forget daily responsibilities. We're going to see the Lord, you know. 
And so they may have stopped war. I don't know. Thus, if that was the case, this command here is to stir up these loafers and order them to do their duty. That's what the scholar says. It's possible. But let me just say this. It is not necessary for us to be certain about the specific idleness that Paul was addressing in order for us to take something from this passage. There's no problem with considering it or thinking it through, but we can apply this issue of being idle to any situation in which one is not following through on their responsibilities or is being irresponsible, undisciplined, or lazy in this life, in home life, in church life. Admonish the idol. So we're going to stop right there. I wanted to get to encourage the faint-hearted, but I told you I'd be done early. I want to honor that. But what I wanted to capture for you today is to just even think through about how you think about the church. How you think about the church will impact how you interact with the church or don't interact with the church. How you partner with the church or how you don't partner with the church. How hospitable you are or how unhospitable you are. It comes from how you think about the church. If you're thinking rightly about these things, then you will be doing the things that it will take in order for you to actually fulfill these exhortations and, for that matter, care about them. All right? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these exhortations. I thank you for your church. I thank you for this church. I love these people. Father, you love them. I'm glad to be a part of this body, glad to be partnered with it. It's your sovereign hand, your providence that has brought us together. Glad you have made us one together in Christ for all those who do have faith in the Lord Jesus. Father, there may be some in here who have stinking thinking, wrong thinking, unbiblical thinking concerning this community, this local body, this church here in Fontana. And I pray that you would bring that to their attention through your spirit, that you would then bring conviction and that along with that there would be repentance. That not only they would put off what is wrong, but put on what is right. Father, I pray that because we need them to be thinking right. I need all my brothers and sisters here to be thinking right about one another and to be interacting with them appropriately and partnering together to help one another be what you want us to be. Our health as a local body depends on this very thing. Only if we think right will we be in a position to carry out these blessed exhortations that are given for our good, for our good, for the health of the local body, and for your glory. Father, help Summit Bible Church to be as much as it can be 
with all of its weaknesses, with all of its issues, because we are a community of people, redeemed people. Help us to be, work in us, Father, mightily, to be a church that truly honors you, glorifies you, brings you delight, and stands as a great witness to this lost world of what happens when the gospel penetrates the soul. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.